morning, everyone. We're reading uh, from Samuel, 1 Samuel this morning. 1 Samuel, starting uh, chapter 9, verse 1, and going through to chapter 10, verse 9. So it's a bit of a long one. Samuel chap- 1 Samuel, chapter 9, verse 1. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again, Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel... If someone went to inquire of God, they would say, Come, let us go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good, Saul said to his servant. Come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water, and they asked them, Is the seer here? He is, they answered. He's ahead of you. Hurry now. He's just come to our town today, for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Go up now. You should find him about this time. They went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? Saul answered, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? 
Why do you say such a thing to me? Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about 30 in number. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, Here is what has been kept for you. Eat, because it was set aside for you for this occasion, from the time I said, I have invited guests. And Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. They rose about daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here for a while, so that I may give you a message from God. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He's asking, what should I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will sure wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave, Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these things were fulfilled that day. I believe uh, our six to eight group will be heading out for their Bible learning time. The rest of us, please keep your books, uh, books, Bibles, well, Bible means book. Keep your books open at uh, 1 Samuel beginning chapter 9. I'll lead us briefly in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks, that you speak through your word, and in your word you reveal things to us that we need to know for life and for salvation. Please help us to concentrate, to lay aside any hindrances or distractions that we might learn uh, from your word, in a way that brings glory and honour to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, one of the ongoing struggles in the Christian life is the fight against the temptation to let our experience interpret the Bible rather than letting the Bible interpret our experience. A little girl looks out the window she sees a strange building with a cross on the top and she says, Mummy, what's that? And of course, Mummy responds, that's a church, darling. As a teenager, 
Her friend sends her a text, meet me in the city near that big old building, what is it, the church? And so as a grown-up, she opens a Bible and she sees the word church and she immediately thinks of an old building with a cross on top. But of course, as you and I know, the Bible never uses the word church to refer to a building. You've actually got to work out what God is saying rather than let your experience become the interpretive key. Now, that's just a very simple, bland example, but it happens in much more complex ways as well. Uh, one of the sort of big ones at the moment is uh, that there's nowhere at all in the New Testament that ever describes the, the activity of Christians gathered as worship. But for some reason, the church constantly refers to gathering as, as worshipping. And it can be hard. It can take a bit of hard work and emotional energy to let the word of God change our minds on things we might even feel strongly or passionately about precisely because they've been learnt and reinforced by experience. Uh, that's why it's really good when God gives us compelling reasons to keep going in that fight, to keep doing that hard work of being transformed by the renewing of our minds in accordance with his word. And that's something he does for us here this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 9 through to the first half of chapter 10. To make sure we're all up to speed, uh, we saw last week that to address the leadership crisis in Israel, uh, God's people have asked their, the appointed spokesman, Samuel, to give them a king. Now, there's actually nothing wrong with that request per se. In Deuteronomy 17, God himself gave instructions about how to establish a kingship when you're in Israel. The problem is, of course, that Israel didn't want God to appoint the king. They wanted a king of their own choosing, one who would make them like God all the other nations, which of course amounts rightly to a rejection of God. But thus, we now get introduced to the man Saul, who would become the people's chosen king, and whose story will occupy the many remaining pages of 1 Samuel. Now, Saul's introduction seems to be filled with deliberate ambiguity about whether or not he will make a good king. I hope you were listening as Jenny was reading. The first couple of verses, chapter 9, have a really strong start. We get a genealogy with an apparently impressive man, you know, head taller than everyone else. And so right off the bat, our expectations are raised. But then they're kind of dashed just as quickly. Verse 3, now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha but they did not find them. They went into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. They passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. This doesn't sound particularly grand or kingly. I mean, if you were going to make the strange choice to, to talk about how this guy handles the family flock, wouldn't it be more promising if the story went something like, this young handsome man was tending the flock and every now and then a a lion or a bear came and snatched one of the goats, but he chased after it, he grabbed it by the hair and struck it down and he, and he saved the animal from the mouth of the bear. Wouldn't that be something? But <laughs> as if that's ever going to happen. But then Saul looks promising again. Because unlike the wicked children of Eli and the, the, the wayward children of Samuel who, who disregard their fathers, Saul cares at least about what his dad thinks. Verse 5, when they reach the district of Zulf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, come, let's go back on my father. 
Well, stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. So one of your mother and father, he gets a big tick. That's really good. But then things start to move away from the, I guess, the ordinary mundane. The, the servant, who's a pretty cluey guy, it seems, has a different idea for what their next move should be. Verse 6, but the servant replied, look, in this town, where we've found ourselves after searching for three days. In this town, there's a man of God. He's highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Uh, more literally, perhaps he can tell us our way on which we have walked. You can see why the translators avoided that because it's really clunky, but it actually gives the suggestion that the ser servant has worked out there's Possibly something interesting going on, maybe something strange going on here. Perhaps there's a, a deeper meaning that needs to be discerned behind the events. I mean, we've wandered for three days and we end up in the town of this man of God. Now, initially, Saul is reluctant. And so, like you and I all do from time to time, he comes up with a convenient excuse to not continue on. Basically, mate, we've got nothing to give this guy. But then another unexpected thing happens that gives even more of a hint that there's some kind of supernatural element to what's going on here. Verse 8, the servant answered him again, look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I'll give it to the man of God so that he will tell us the way to take. But of course, more literally, again, in the original, there is found in my hand a quarter of a shekel. It's as if the servant suspects that their destiny is preordained and directed by God because he just well, happened to find this, this money in, in, in my hand that I'll, I'll give to the guy. Presumably, it was the practice that you paid for the upkeep of God's prophet so he can keep conducting his prophetic ministry. I hope that's, that's why they wanted to pay. I hope it wasn't that, you know, it was like the pagan practice. We pay a seer for him to tell us what we want, like what happened with Balaam and Balak, who incidentally was led around by a donkey. Anyway, in verse 9, the narrator reminds us that the old word for prophet was the word seer. I did a little word search for seer in the Old Testament this week and I discovered that it's very often used of a prophet who has a particular duty of serving a king. So if you've never heard the rest of the story, if you're completely unfamiliar with this, it is possible that it, this is the point where you might have started to wonder if Saul is the one who will be appointed king. That's weird for us because I suspect most of us, if not all of us, kind of know that he's going to become king, but... It's interesting to keep that in your mind. This could be the first time you discover that. In any event, Saul listens to his servant and authoritatively announces their new course. Verse 10, good, Saul said to his servant, come, let's go. So they set up for the town where the man of God was. And it's then that something happens to make it absolutely clear that there is most certainly a significant supernatural element to this journey that needs to be discerned. The servant suspected it, but now it's confirmed. Verse 11, as they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water. If you've ever read the story of Isaac, the story of Joseph, the story of Moses, even the story of Jesus with a Samaritan woman, you will know that God has a habit of making big, life-changing things happen when there's young women drawing water at a well. They ask the women, is the seer here? And what do you know? By amazing coincidence, inverted commas, 
The timing turned out to be just perfect. Verse 12, he has just come to our own town today. For the people have a sacrifice at the high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him. Go up now. You should find him about this time. So, verse 14, they went to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place, i.e., this whole thing is not merely a coincidence. Now, brothers and sisters, I assume you all know that God is always sovereign and always in control, but in this instance, as he is free to do, I think he's choosing to make his sovereign control especially obvious, at least to us, the reader. And I reckon this is supposed to make us wonder something. You remember back with Samuel early on in, 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 in the book that God so clearly, decisively orchestrated the events that led to his, his birth. Remember the Lord had closed Hannah's womb and then the Lord blessed her with a son and, and, and that also led to Samuel serving Eli. You know, the Lord made sure that he ended up serving under Eli and, and then, of course, it was just a matter of time before God revealed himself to Samuel by his word. Remember, he called him three times and he thought it was Eli, but then he was the Lord. Samuel embraced that word of God and became a great leader, a great prophet. You might remember from Dan to Beersheba, everyone attested that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. So here again, when we're seeing it sort of put right in front of our face that God is decisively orchestrating the events and he's soon going to reveal himself to Saul again by his word, we're thinking something like, God has set this up to make us wonder, will Saul, like Samuel, embrace the word of God? Will he become a great leader? That's the real ambiguity at this point. Will Saul embrace the word of God once it's revealed to him? As we'll see next week, uh, later on in chapter 10, it will be fitting to ask, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? We've got questions being asked of him. Will he, like Samuel, come to know and abide by the word of God? Those who are very familiar will know that it's a sand ending, the reason for his eventual downfall. He's, he does not abide by the word of God, but that's for another time. We leave the ambiguity of this introduction for the time being, and we turn now to get a clear view of what God has been doing behind the scenes to bring about this meeting between Saul and Samuel. There's a decisive shift in the tone from the ambiguity of what's kind of going on with Saul to the absolute certainty of what God is doing by his word as expressed through Samuel. So verse 15, now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler over my people Israel, he will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people for their cries reach me. And then, of course, verse 17, when Samuel caught sight of Saul, just to make it absolutely sure, the Lord said to him, this is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Did you notice that in these verses, God does not refer to Saul as the future king? Of course, he will indeed become the king of Israel. But here, God speaks of him as ruler or as governor. Whilst God is sympathetic to the cry of his people, for the time being at least, the reality is that he is still their sovereign ruler. He himself is their king and he has not chosen another king through which to express his rule. They have chosen a king. 
Hence, God in his righteousness and frankly in his truthfulness won't speak of Saul as a king until the people's choice is ratified, which it will be in due course. The other, even more important thing to notice from these verses is that what looked like two guys chasing some lost donkeys was actually God orchestrating a really important meeting. No human being could ever have discerned such a thing. It is purely on account of the revelation of God that that experience, if you like, can be interpreted correctly. And that actually gets highlighted for us in the following section when it's made clear that Samuel, the spokesman of God, has all the certainty, whereas Saul is completely bewildered. So verse 18, Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, would you please tell me where the seer's house is? And I think we're meant to see him as the, the bewildered, out-of-the-know guy. Hence, verse 19 is a great uh, contrast. I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I'll send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost, you lost. Three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. Uh, the author of a fantastic commentary on the books of 1 and 2, Samuel, says at this point, I wish I could have seen Saul's face as Samuel just sort of casually says to me, oh, by the way, the donkeys you lost have been found. You know, Wouldn't that be something? He just found out that what he thought was a donkey chase ended up being a God-directed meeting for some presumably important purpose. And guys, incidentally, this reminds me, I don't know if it reminds you, but it reminds me of another man named Saul from the tribe of Benjamin who once went chasing followers of Jesus to have them imprisoned or killed. But God revealed to him that his journey on a murderous campaign that took him to the Damascus Road was orchestrated such that he would meet God's ultimate prophet, the very word of God who is God himself, namely, of course, Jesus. But that's a sidetrack for another day. Back here in verse 20, the next words of Samuel to Saul are, and to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? Now, because Saul is bewildered and a bit naive, he hears this as a positive thing and gives a modest response that unwittingly reminds the reader of God's grace to Israel, despite her relative insignificance. Verse 21, Saul answered, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? Is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? But again, you and I who are in the know can see that again there's much more than meets the eye. God himself, of course, should have been the desire of all Israel. So it's tragic that this desire has turned to this, yes, upstanding, but somewhat clueless donkey hunter. And yet, the good thing about Saul's naive response is that it reminds us that God's plans yet will certainly and definitely come to pass no matter what, and that he will be gracious to his people. You see, if you remember from earlier on in the Bible, when God chose Israel to be his special people, his kingdom of priests, it wasn't because they were the most impressive 
It was, in fact, because they were the smallest, the least impressive of nations, just as Saul came from the least of the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, with this meeting, this introduction between Saul and Samuel out of the way, we now follow Saul and Samuel as they go up to the high place for the sacrificial meal. In verse 22, they sit down with about 30 companions, but the fact that they are there at all shows us that Samuel is not only serving in his role as a prophet, but he also seems to be doing the work of God's priest. He's overseeing a sacrifice. He brings the word of God as a prophet, but you remember Eli and his sons are now dead and their family lines kind of removed from the priesthood. And it seems now that Samuel has kind of taken up the mantle. He also now mediates between God and God's people through sacrifice. We know that Samuel is soon also to die. In last week, we saw, you're, you're, behold, thou art old. You're going to die. And so we might be wondering, for the next leader, who will eventually be king, will he embrace the word of God like a prophet, and perhaps even will he take the role of a priest? Could he be king and prophet and priest all together? There seems to be a suggestion that that's the idea. Verse 23, Samuel said to the cook, bring me the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, here is what has been kept aside for you. Eat because it was set aside for you. For this occasion from the time I said, I have invited guests. And again, you know your Old Testament? The thigh portion of a sacrificial offering is usually reserved for the priests and the priests' families, perhaps more than any other portion. Could it ever be possible to have an ideal ruler who serves as the king, not of the people's choosing, but you know, the king of God's choosing, who embraces the word of God as, as a prophet and who mediates between God and his people through priestly sacrifice. And if you could get such a leader, imagine you could get rid of the problem of death, cutting short their rule. Now, obviously I'm dreaming. I mean, the only way that could ever even potentially happen is like, you know, pretty much if God himself like came down as a man and took on the job or whatever. Anyway, after Saul spends the night at Samuel's house, here's how their meeting ends the following day. Verse 27, as they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servants to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here for a while so that I may anoint you as the king of Israel. You still, yeah, thank you, brother. But stay here for a while so that I may anoint you as the king of Israel. <laughs> of course, that's not what it says. But I say that to give a bit of emphasis and the importance of those last few words. Given all that's happened thus far, we might really expect that to be what it says. But Samuel's first words are, I'll give you a message from God. And whoever did the chapter divisions decided to end there. And I think that's... That, that means they've understood what you're supposed to go, oh, message from God is what this guy needs. 
Of course, Saul does get anointed in the very next verse as ruler over God's people for the time being. So 10 and verse 1, then Samuel took a flask of olive oil, poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, is not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? By the way, if you don't know what the word anointed means, it just means covered in something like oil, presumably for an office. But true to Samuel's word and therefore God's word, there is a message that he needs to hear. You see, God, through his prophet Samuel, sets up this elaborate inauguration process for the new ruler. And on first reading, and I wonder if this happened as Jenny read it out, it just looks like a bunch of weird, random stuff that happens for no apparent reason. But a bit of careful study makes you realise that all these, the first chunk of chapter 10, all these are signs from God that illustrate the nature of the kingship that God himself envisages for his people. I mean, twice they're called signs, right? So we, we, we know that they're pointing to, to a reality. Now, for the sake of time at this point, I'm not going to go through all of them in detail, but I will give us a bit, a bit of a, a quick-fire summary of God's message through the signs about the kingship he envisages. Uh, it might be helpful to have the chap chapter 10 in front of you. Firstly, Saul will meet some guys near Rachel's tomb near the border of Benjamin. Uh, if you know your Old Testaments, Rachel died in childbirth, and her death is on view because it's Rachel's tomb, right? Rachel died in childbirth, and she named the, the son that was born to her Bain Oni, which means son of my trouble. But Jacob obviously didn't want his kid to be called, you know, that troublesome kid. So he renamed him Benjamin, or Benjamin, son of my right hand. So if you're an ancient Israelite and you see Rachel and Benjamin in the same sentence and Rachel's dead because it's her tomb, you're probably wondering whether this ruler is going to be a son of trouble or will he be a son of God's right hand? The guy Saul meets will say that his father is asking after him, I've forgotten about the donkeys, what about you? What am I doing, going to do about my son? Is what his father's thinking. Indeed, the time will also come when God will consider the king of Israel his own son. Uh, he will never take his love away from a king in the line of David, even if he does turn out to be a son of trouble, which most of them do. Now, this is something that's confused Christians for 2,000 years. Son of God can usually mean a king in the line of David. Right? That's son of God. We, we keep thinking that son of God and God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, the third person of the Trinity, we keep putting them together. They're different things. God the Son, Jesus, became a king in the line of David. God the Son became a son of God. If you're confused about that, come and talk to me afterwards. Then, three guys on their way to worship God at Bethel will be carrying goats, bread, and wine, and they'll give Saul some of that stuff. Later on in 1 Samuel chapter 16, Jesse, the father of David, will send those exact three things to the now king, Saul, which gives you the hint that they're customarily suitable gifts for a king. Those who worship God will honour his anointed. And if you've read through 1 and 2 Samuel, you know that David takes that very seriously, deadly seriously. As a matter of fact, the guy who ends up... Um, putting the Lord's anointed Saul to death, 
is a guy that David executes. Then Saul will go to a city where there's a Philistine outpost. This one's easy. When you hear Philistine outpost, you're wondering how the new ruler will save his people from their enemies. And as Hannah prayed all the way back in chapter 2, it will not be by strength that one prevails. The real strength is going to come from God. And, of course, God reveals himself by his word. And so Saul, in his inauguration, signalling the kind of kingship he had, he's not going to march with an army. He's going to be in a procession of prophets. The word of God is going to be the thing, his source of strength and power. And the spirit of the Lord, by which the revelation of the Lord comes, will come upon him. God's anointed would rule in God's strength, by God's word and by God's spirit. Now, how is Saul going to measure up to God's vision of the kingship. Well, of course, we find out in coming weeks, but, you know, spoiler alert, it's not too good. But in the meantime, I hope you can see that amidst the general ambiguity of meaning in the most run-of-the-mill sort of daily life activities, there's a sovereign God who graciously chooses to reveal things, to reveal truth, by his word. That which we could never discern by experience is that which God has made known by revelation. It's why centuries later, the apostle Peter, when talking about God's true anointed ruler, who is the great prophet, the great high priest, the great king, Jesus, the son of God, that Peter could say about him to his fellow Israelites in Acts chapter 2 that this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, which obviously you had no idea of because it wasn't revealed. And so you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. It's also why Saul of Tarsus, also known as the Apostle Paul, could say to the gathered Christians in Corinth, that there are things God has made known to them by his spirit, a kind of wisdom, if you like, that there was simply no other way of knowing. In fact, he says, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. God rules over all things by his word, and his word is far more trustworthy far more powerful and, frankly, is the truth, unlike our experiences, which are sort of awash with truth and mystery altogether. The great motivation to keep meditating on what God has revealed in his word is that in the absence of doing so, we look like wandering men who can't find their lost donkeys. And the fact that we're handsome as we do it only seems to make it more pathetic couple of quick implications to finish. First of all, it's important that we have the word of God as our final authority, or if you like, the word of God as our anchor. Now, I know that as I say that, we can all quite easily give mental assent if we're followers. Oh, yes, the word of God is, is what directs me. And yet, there's this ongoing, persistent issue faced all around churches where you get people that say, I'm walking away from Jesus. Why are you walking away from Jesus? Oh, well, this person at the church did that. Or the church said this. Oh, my church did that. 
It's like, well, wait, was your faith grounded in the word of God or was it grounded in the people whose faith is grounded in the word of God? Uh, if someone says to you, can you tell me what it means that you're a Christian? What, you know, what, what makes you a Christian? And to have a better answer than, well, I go to church, therefore I'm a Christian. Or, you know, I liked a girl once and she was a Christian, so I became one and we got married and that's why I'm a Christian. That's all your experience. What, what from the word of God can explain what it means that you are a follower of Jesus? If you can't do that, take the opportunity this week to think, how would I explain from the word of God what it means that I'm a follower of God's true anointed king, Jesus? Second implication is that it's really important in our particular time and culture to again let the word of God determine how we see what's going on broadly in the world. I wouldn't be surprised if what we're seeing on a global scale is kind of like the demise of Western culture politically and socially at the moment, right? Yeah. You look around, even the stuff with like, you know, vax and anti-vax, the stuff with gender and the, it just seems like common sense has gone out the window and stuff that we used to take, you know, as, as being sort of fairly logical and, and sensible is, 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 is kind of being, you know, thrown to the dogs. It's like you can look around and you read enough stuff in the paper or look at enough stuff on YouTube and you'll think, as far as Western culture has gone, the, 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 the world's gone to hell in a handbasket, right? You know, I reckon God's not going to tolerate this for much longer. I reckon Jesus is going to come back next year because how much is his patience going to put up with this mess? Now, yeah, in some ways it's a godly thought, but according to the word of God, we are no more in the end times today than we were since the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus says you'll hear of wars and rumours of wars and famines. In other words, all the fallen things of this world that are really constant don't get deceived. Don't let that. Don't, don't think. Oh well, you know, it must be that you know, Jesus is going to return next year. He might return in five thousand years. He could come tonight. It'd be nice if he came tonight, but it could be five thousand years, right? What does Jesus actually say? And don't look around the world to sort of make up your theology. I'm going to come like a thief in the night. That's how. That's how it's going to be. So just remain vigilant. The world could go in a hell, a hell in a handbasket around me. So be it. I'm going to remain faithful to Jesus. His word is my anchor, not my experience of the things of the world. To that end, I'm going to conclude in prayer, and I'm uh, thankful that I've kind of just made it through the volume of the rain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God of revelation, that you reveal all that we need to know to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you gave us the ultimate prophet, priest, and king in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that unlike the king who would take, 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 Jesus is the one that would give, 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 and give his life as a ransom for many. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us, help us to discern your thoughts, your ways, and the basis of your word over and above our experience. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.